invite the rest of you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 this morning. Continue our study of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 8. You follow along as I read, beginning in verse 5. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. And I'll begin reading here in verse 5 of chapter 8. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. Jesus answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof and speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And this servant was healed in the self same hour. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you'll bless uh, this uh, particular passage of scripture to our hearts this morning as we talk about the great faith of this centurion. Bless uh, our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we talk about the great faith of the centurion in our text this morning, let's notice some things about centurions. First of all, I guess we could say that the centurion was one of the law enforcement officers of Jesus' day. Uh, one of the reasons I, uh, I guess you could say, hang out with cops as a law enforcement chaplain is that they are God's appointed servants to keep law and order in our society, but also, uh, as this centurion in our text this morning, they too have spiritual needs and need to realize they need to have a relationship with the Lord just as much as anyone else. And because of the unique and the heavy load that soldiers and law enforcement officers are required to carry in fulfilling their duties of dealing with the traumatic events and death and so forth, they especially need to have the kind of faith that we find here in our text. And since they didn't have sheriffs and police officers back in Jesus' day, the Roman soldiers had the responsibility of enforcing the law. A centurion was a military leader in the Roman army. His position, as is expressed in his title, means commander of a hundred. But a centurion may not have been a commander of a literal hundred soldiers. He may have been responsible for more than a hundred. At any rate, he was clearly a Roman commander of great significance. And by the way, did you know that every centurion that is mentioned in the Bible, is mentioned favorably. I don't know if you realize that as you think about that, and if you study centurions in the Bible, you'll find them always spoken of in a positive sense. And what's more, they are often involved in important event, events in the Bible stories. 
Uh, For example, it was the centurion who stood by the cross as Jesus died. And it was a centurion who reported the Savior's death to Pilate. One of the first Gentile converts during the ministry of the apostles was Cornelius, a centurion of an Italian regiment. And centurions were often involved in key events in the ministry of the apostle Paul. It was soldiers and centurions being among them who rescued Paul from being killed by a mob in Jerusalem. It was a centurion who prevented Paul from being scourged in order to get information from him. Centurions often protected Paul from being murdered and provided him with a military escort when he traveled. And when he was under imperial detention, it was often the centurions who ensured that he was well cared for and that his friends were able to visit him. One centurion prevented a large group of prisoners from being executed during a shipwreck and because he wanted to keep Paul alive. There was a centurion at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, as our passage speaks of this morning, and there was a centurion at the end of Jesus' public ministry standing there at the cross. The centurion, at the beginning of his ministry, was used of God to identify Jesus as the Son of God. And the centurion at the end of Jesus' ministry exclaimed, Truly, this was the Son of God. And all the centurions of the Bible were presented as men of remarkable character. They had wisdom. They had authority. And we should never minimize the crucial part that they play in God's Word. Now, faith, the word faith is a commonly, uh, one of the most common words in our language. It's used in a variety of ways. Uh, We're told to have faith in ourselves. We're told to have faith in our abilities, faith in our religion, faith in our society. We're even told to have faith in God. Faith by itself is a part of the fabric of everyday life. We place faith in the food we eat and the medicines that we take and the vehicles that we drive. In that, uh, we place a level of confidence in these things that they will perform certain functions in our lives. But none of this sort of faith has anything to do with the great faith of which Christ speaks of in our text this morning. We must not rest until our faith rests in Christ alone. And I believe that's the challenge of this story from the Gospels. Do you struggle over your own faith in God? Then consider with me how this story shows how both inadequate faith and sound faith can play a part in a person's life. First of all, notice an inadequate faith, an inadequate faith. Now, as we look at this text this morning, we must compare Matthew and Luke's record of this story to get the full picture. Luke tells us that representatives from the Jewish community in Capernaum, the elders, delivered the centurion's request. In this period, a delegated representative was considered to be as though he was that person himself. For instance, a centurion was a representative of the emperor. Uh, His commands were to be taken as as though the emperor himself had spoken. And in the same way, as you look at Luke's fuller version of the story, it explains that the Jewish elders came as an equivalent of the centurion by means of representation. How the Jewish 
elders appeal to Jesus stands in marked contrast to the centurion's own words. Though they represented him, they chose to sort of ad-lib, if you please, and offer their own recommendation. Just hold your place there and turn with me for a moment to Luke chapter 7. Luke, the seventh chapter, and let's read in verse, beginning in verse 2. Luke chapter 7, beginning verse 2, it says, And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Now you notice there that the Jewish elders appealed to Jesus' intervention on the following basis. They said the centurion was worthy in their estimation of Jesus' work. And then further, his worthiness was due to his love of Israel and his contribution in building the synagogue at Capernaum. Matthew's account adds that the faith of the centurion was unlike that of the Jews and considered themselves children of the kingdom. Now, for these things, we can gather several thoughts that help us to see what kind of faith is inadequate for a relationship with Christ. An inadequate faith, first of all, relies on personal worth. Personal worth. Here was the insistence of the Jewish elders that the centurion was worthy of Christ. While the centurion, as we read in our text in Matthew, declared his own unworthiness. There are perhaps a few things more eternally destructive than the mindset that we are worthy of Christ. Whether it is a worthiness counted due to one's sense of personal self-esteem or worthiness that one thinks has arisen from moral behavior or certain works or deeds that they've done, it is still the root of an inadequate faith. The very heart of a sound faith is found in realizing one's own desperate unworthiness before God. We do not deserve God's goodness and His grace in the least. The basis of such a mindset found in embracing a worldview is either light on God's law or devoid of it. As long as we compare ourselves to others, then we can find plenty of people that outwardly behave in a more inferior way. You can always find someone who's worse than you are. We can find plenty that do not care in the least about church this morning. Many of our neighbors and friends and even some of our family members would not come through those doors this morning because they don't think it's important. And so we can think about it in that sense. We can find plenty who would not care about maintaining a level of personal decency. But others, that's the wrong standard. We're not to think about it in sense of what others are doing. It's when we compare ourselves to the law of God that we d- discover how unworthy we really are. The centurion obviously had exposure to God's law. He was a foreigner to Israel, but likely could have either been a Syrian or a Samaritan. 
as the case of most Roman centurions in that region. Now, if he was a Samaritan, then he would have been quite familiar with the Pentateuch since that was their only scripture. Now, being a friend of the synagogue, he likely was familiar with both the law and the prophets. But here is the irony. While the Jewish elders had grown overly familiar with the law so that they did not consider themselves under condemnation, the centurion, with far less exposure, felt the pain of the law's demand so that he was gripped by his unworthiness. Now, if you're one that thinks you deserve God's favor... If you deserve, you think you deserve God's forgiveness and God's blessing, then I beg you to read the Ten Commandments. I beg you to read the Sermon on the Mount and the opening three chapters of the book of Romans. And then see if you feel as worthy as you really think you are. As long as you think God owes you forgiveness due to some performance or some practice on your part, you will not be trusting in Christ alone. For the very fact that you think yourself to be worthy demonstrates that you're trusting yourself before God. An inadequate faith relies on personal worth. Secondly, an inadequate faith relies on family or religious associations. Family or religious associations. Here the Jewish elders thought that the centurion's love for our nation and his role in building our synagogue would be platforms for approaching Christ. Had the centurion not uh, been known for loving Israel, had uh, helping to build a synagogue, you know, it's quite clear they would not have recommended him uh, uh, to Christ. But here they place great stock in his association with religious people and an institution. And you know, this is so common today, that one thinks it needs not to be mentioned. And yet clearly, many people lack a sound faith in Christ because their confidence before God is in their association with maybe Christian parents or friends or a church or even a parachurch organization. Some religious organization they are sort of tied into. They, make, uh, they feel like their confidence is in that before God. This is where Jesus warned that the children of the kingdom, as it says here, that is, those who were a part of the Jewish covenantal people, would be cast into the outer darkness. How many were perishing that cling to their baptism as an infant? or a teenager, uh, and to their partaking of communion, or to their membership in a church. You know, I cannot even begin to count the number of people through the years that I've encountered that trust in things, but do not know the saving power of Christ in their lives. This is not a problem only among Catholics that trust in baptism as infants, or assume that they're right with God because of the act of... of, uh, Uh, this act of which they have no personal recollection. It's most common problem even in the false faith among Baptists. And I'm afraid many people have been damned by the baptismal waters in Baptist churches because being baptized yet unconverted and baptism becomes sort of a mental proxy for faith in Christ alone. 
It's not in the ritual of a church or a religion. It's not in the baptism, uh, even in here in our, in our Baptist churches, that saves a person. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. Many will not listen to the gospel with any degree of seriousness, nor will they open themselves to the scrutiny of biblical tests of true conversion, all because they're relying upon some religious practice. An inadequate faith relies on personal worth. An inadequate faith relies on family or religious associations. And thirdly, an inadequate faith relies on, upon a presumptuous theology. A presumptuous theology. And let me point out that theology is necessary for knowing God. Because all that theology comprises is the various teachings, the doctrine of the Scriptures. You know, there are some religious organizations and, and people say, oh, we don't worry about doctrine around here. We just want to love Jesus. We just want to get along together. Don't worry about doctrine. You don't worry about doctrine, you're not going to worry about what God's Word says. Theology is not the enemy of conversion but a faithful evangelist that explains the truth of the Scripture so we might understand God as He desires to be known, and likewise that we might understand ourselves as God sees us. The inadequate faith presumes that man is basically good and that he can do certain deeds that will put him in favor with God. And such was the mindset of the Jewish elders that considered the centurion's efforts at building their synagogue and that was adequate to cover the deeds of sins that darkened his soul. But there are no deeds, there are no good works that can take away the stain of sin that saturates our souls. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. None. Not even one. None. None. All have turned aside. None. Not even one. Such words are all inclusive. While the Jewish elders presumed that their good behavior would atone for sin, the centurion was under no such illusions. He knew the darkness of his own soul, and he reiterated to Christ his unworthiness. Someone has appropriately said, the more affected we are with our misery, the fitter we are for Christ's mercy. But the Jewish elders also maintained a presumptuous view of God. In their theological thinking, in their theological bent, God was available to dish out favors and to bless and to make life more comfortable. For so long they had made the grievous error of thinking that God was only interested in our creature comforts. They thought little of the condition of the soul for eternity and much about their temporal happiness. And like so many today, I'm afraid they looked at God with the expectancy that He would further their ambitious lifestyle, 
Bless them. Many times we get to thinking, you know, oh, I just want the blessings of God upon my life. I just want Him to make my life more comfortable. I just want Him to make it easier in life and not to, uh, to deal with the trials. That's not what God's all about. Now, I am thankful this morning for His blessings. I'm thankful for His help in the time of need. I'm thankful, as we talked about last Sunday morning, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and ask for mercy in a time of need. And we have needs. And you can be assured that you can come before the Lord and He will meet your needs. Job's wife apparently thought like this about how God was just going to take care of them and bless them and keep them uh, physically uh, well, with all the temporal comforts and joys of an earthly life. But those were all stripped from Job. And his wife said, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But you know what? Job's theology of God, though still developing, proved to be, the, uh, be faithful to the revelation of God. What did Job say? He said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? You see, even in his bitter experience, Job could cry out, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that He will stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. I wonder, what's your faith like this morning? Is your faith like that of the Jewish elders? Do you think, oh, I'm worthy of God's blessing and God's help and God's comforts in, in my, this life of mine? Is your faith adequate before God? Well, first of all, we see here the inadequate faith, but secondly, notice with me a sound faith. A sound faith. Now, what does a sound faith look like? Jesus commended the faith of the centurion. He said, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. This is the kind of faith that Christ commends. This is the faith that sets forth as an example to all who will believe in Him. Notice, first of all, great faith sees. Great faith sees the need of Christ. And I deliberately use that phrase, sees the need of Christ, so that we could understand the centurion's example to us. Any of us can see the need of Christ by reading the testimony of Scripture concerning this man and all men. But it's only when we embrace what we see, when we personalize it, that we can truly look to Christ alone. What does this look like in your life when you see and understand the need of Christ? You see, the centurion, he pulled back at the holy Christ coming under his roof. He says, you can't, I don't deserve you coming under my roof. Lord, I'm not worthy of you to come under, into my house. 
Again, we find here one who is in the state described in the first clauses of the Beatitudes. He was poor in spirit. He was mourning over his sin. He had a, 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 his will was bent to the submission in Christ. He was hungering and thirsting for righteousness and to uh, whom came the promise of the second clauses. Theirs is the kingdom of God because Christ is connecting a link between the two. Here's an illustration of what he was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I know this sounds somewhat like a gloomy subject, but if we've known nothing of our own unworthiness before God and see nothing of the desperation of our soul, I dare say we've not trusted Christ. You see, the one who understands his need for Christ humbles himself before the Lord. Yes, it may be a miserable process, but we will not truly flee to Christ until we've seen our desperate need of Him by reason of our own unworthiness. How do we come to such a place of understanding our need of Christ? No, number one, you read the Gospels. Read the Gospels and you see Christ in all His glory revealed. Look at Him closely. See the way He lived. Hear the revelation of Him as God came in flesh, followed Him to the cross, and see the blameless Son of God bearing your guilt and blame, suffering in your place. Think about, upon His matchless worth and incomparable love. Read the Gospel. Secondly, read the Scripture, what the Scripture says about you. Read this, what the Scripture says about you. You see, it is indeed a mirror. James explains this in James chapter 1. This book, this word is a mirror that exposes every nook and cranny of our hearts. Be honest with the declarations of Scripture. See yourself as fallen, condemned, already under God's judgment, helpless to contribute any worth before God. Read the Gospels. Read the Scripture and what it says about you. And then thirdly, take a look at yourself in light of God's demands. Take a look at yourself in light of God's commands. Refuse to compare yourself with others, thus lessening the blow. Again, we can often, always find somebody that's worse than we are. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, that, they, you should see the things that they do. I'm not that bad. That makes us look better, right? No, we're to look to Christ. We're to see and read what God demands and then bluntly be honest about our lives and like the centurion, maybe cry out, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Great faith sees the need of Christ. Secondly, great faith looks to Christ. Very similar, isn't it? You see the need of Christ, but then great faith looks to Christ. There's something so helpful for us that we see in the centurion. He had not been following Christ around. He had not sat with the multitude at the Sermon on the Mount. He had lived in Capernaum and may have been exposed to the news of Christ healing the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. He was in the same region, that is Galilee, as Canaan, and and, uh, may may have heard about the water being turned into wine in uh, John chapter 2. Luke tells of his love for Israel and his involvement in the synagogue, so we might assume that he was exposed to the law and the prophets. 
What knowledge he had was slight, but it proved sufficient to embrace Christ. You see, the Spirit of God blessed the knowledge of this centurion. and The rumors that were brought to him of Christ's doctrine and his miracles. Some become bogged down in the details of Christ's life and teaching that they fail to look to Christ. They are enamored with what they know rather than what uh, are being satisfied with knowing Him. God forbid that we fail to look to Christ as our prophet and priest and king while trying to find the perfect understanding of Him. You know, you will never reach a complete understanding of the one that is infinite. And like the Bereans, we need to be searching the Scriptures, testing our understanding by the Word, but as we see our desperate need of Him, then trust Him with an understanding that we have. Christ was pleased with the centurion's faith. Again, He said, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And the reason Christ refers this kind of, prefers this kind of faith to the Gentile centurion to that of the Jewish elders was not even though his acquaintance with doctrine was small, it yielded fruit. And I believe this is a great encouragement to any among us who may be feeling weighted down by what you do not know. You might say, well, I just don't know much about the Bible. I just don't know much about Christ. Have you trusted Christ with your little knowledge like the centurion, or do you know much but apply nothing to your soul? It's not the size of one's knowledge but the object of his faith that matters most. Great faith sees the need of Christ. Great faith looks to Christ. And thirdly, great faith trusts the word of Christ. The Pharisees were always looking for signs, but never believing in Christ. Great faith trusts the word of Christ. The centurion sought no sign. He was confident that Christ would just say a word for His beloved servant to be healed. And proof of this is found in Christ's words to him. He said, go, it shall be done for you as thou hast believed. Or literally, go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. Matthew tells us, and his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. The centurion rested upon the word of Christ. But how did he have such confidence in Christ? The centurion believed in the power and the authority of Christ in all things. He gave the remarkable comparison of his own authority. You see that in verse 9. His example demonstrates with only slight knowledge about Christ that he trusted Christ to be the Lord over all things. Now he understood the authority of Christ as from God. And this Gentile centurion penetrated more deeply into the nature of Jesus' person and authority than any Jew had at that time. He realized that Christ alone represented God. And so for this reason, he was satisfied with the word of Christ. While the Jews were excessively eager to obtain outward signs, this Gentile seeks no visible sign, but openly declares that he wants nothing more than just the Word of Christ. And so herein lies a critical key to having sound faith. Reliance upon the Word of Christ, the Gospel alone. Maybe you seek something more than you 
before you're going to be satisfied. All the centurion needed was a word from Christ. I wonder, have you heard him in the gospel? Then believe him. Rest your faith in the certainty of Christ's promise. Now while Gentiles, many will come from the east and the west, it tells us here, will join the patriarchs in heaven, those who were privileged as children of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness. The far reaches of God's favor and love will be swallowed by the eternal darkness. And in that gloom there will be a weeping, that is an eternal suffering and a gnashing of teeth, the eternal despair. And even though privileged to know and see so much, they did not need see their need for Christ, nor did they look to Christ with eyes of faith, nor did they cling to the word of Christ. I trust this morning that that does not describe your eternity. Do you see your need of Christ? Look to Him and believe. There's a marked difference between the faith of the centurion and the Jewish uh, uh, those whom Jesus identifies as in the kingdom, the typical Israelite. It's in this distinction that he sets forth faith, a great faith, so that we can understand this faith, a biblical, evangelical faith. Many struggle over whether they have genuine faith in Christ. Such a struggle is not necessarily had but rather it's profitable if it drives us to the Scriptures to have our faith affirmed. Our greatest concern is for those who have never known the struggle of faith. For some of these may, in actuality, be no different than these children of kingdom, kingdom whom Christ identified. A struggling faith can lead to a stable, secure faith when we ground it upon the teaching of Scripture. The great danger that any of us face is to either presume upon our faith's adequacy due to certain feelings or experiences that we've had, to neglect any searching investigation of our faith because we're afraid to discover that it's inadequate, or to simply attempt to ignore the gospel and our soul's needs because of a deeper affection for sin and rebellion. I wonder this morning, is your faith inadequate or is it sound? Is your faith a great faith like this centurion? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that each one here this morning in the sound of my voice has found their faith to be adequate. Not putting their faith in this world or their family or a church membership or parent salvation but in their own personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They've seen their need for Christ. And they've looked to Christ and they've trusted the word of Christ. Lord, I pray that our faith will be that which could be called a sound faith, a great faith, as was the centurion's. Lord, bless the message to our hearts this morning. May it meet the needs of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your songbooks and turn with me to 416. 416. My faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. 
God's spoken to your heart concerning anything this morning, perhaps you need to come and meet the Lord here in prayer. We invite you to do so as we sing. On that first verse, first stanza, you, you come, meet us here, and meet the Lord in prayer. Let's stand as we sing.